Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Today, we're going to take a look at poisons through a slightly different lens and give our attention to a common cooking staple and an overlooked poison, salt. Disclaimer, this episode contains child abuse and death. It is an interesting one, though, because I don't think that a lot of people realize that salt, that is sodium chloride, is actually a poison. I had no idea until you told me that you were researching for this episode. I really, I really didn't know that. So before we get too far into it, what is salt? So, I mean, you're probably familiar with table salt and you're probably familiar with salt as a de-icer on roads, Epsom salts, but those aren't necessarily the same thing. Sodium chloride can be used as a de-icer. Here in Colorado, I don't think that we use it as a de-icer very much, maybe, because you can use it at higher temperatures is why it's good as a de-icer mm. than magnesium chloride or calcium chloride. But because we live in a place that does get colder, we can use magnesium chloride and it'll okay. just start de-icing at a lower temperature. But I think it does cause damage to the bodies of cars. And so I think that we're more likely to use mag chloride. Anyhow, both of them are actual salts and Epsom salts are also salts. They're magnesium sulfate. Okay. And so what does it take for something to be considered a salt? Salts can form from several reactions. The one that I'm most familiar with as a chemist is when an acid or a base come together and then you get the salt of that acid or base. So the sulfate is actually in magnesium sulfate. That's an ion that you get from the reaction of an acid and a base. Anyway, you create an ion and a cation that are attracted to each other. Those are the ions, positive, negative. And that's why most of the salts that we're familiar with have an element from group one of the periodic table, like mm. sodium. And m many of them have a group seven element, which is the cation. It's usually a non-metal, like our chloride. Smelling salts, for instance, are ammonium carbonate. That's another one that you can put it in water and it'll break off and you'll get the ammonium mm. ion. And then illicit bath salts I wanted to mention are actually not a salt. They're not bath salts oh. at all. They're a form of amphetamine called mephedrone. Interesting. Yeah, I've heard some crazy stuff about the bath quote-unquote salts. Yes, and so. so the sodium chloride that we get, we actually don't tend to produce industrially by forcing these cations and ions to be formed. We usually just get them from mines left over from seawater. And so I think near Detroit, there's a big salt, mm. old salt deposit. And that's where we get most of our salt for cooking and things like that. And industrial things, because salt is used in a lot of industrial processes. No, interest, that's really interesting that it can come from so many places. Mm -hmm. And so why are we talking about salt as a poison? Okay. Well, I was familiar with salt as a poison because I am familiar with the electrolyte balances that our bodies have to have in order to, you know, have the sodium calcium receptors, things like that. And so I was, I was aware of it. In, in terms of electrolyte imbalances, but this one just kind of fell into my lap, this case did. And I don't know if NSA was listening in or checking my browsing history or what, but at some point after I initially started researching for the show way back when, a news article popped up in my feed and 
it was about a mother poisoning her child with salt. And so I immediately sent it to you. I remember doing right. it. I saw it and I sent it to you. And do you remember anything about that case? I do. I remember that it involved a young mother and she had killed her toddler aged child, I believe, mm-hmm. using salt. And it blew my mind beyond just the horrendous fact of her murdering her child, but the fact that she used something that I would take that bet of that we all have it in our house. Mm-hmm. Everybody has salt. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that she used something that's so commonplace and I had no idea that it could be used as a poison. Yeah. Yeah. And so the case that we're talking about is the Garnet and Lacey Spears case. So Lacey Spears was a 21 year old mother from Alabama And according to this documentary I saw, she grew up loving dolls, which apparently led to her loving children and wanting children. She worked in childcare, and she met a woman named Shauna, who was one of the first people to give a statement about Lacey's character after everything happened. And Shauna had a son named Cameron, who Lacey took care of at this childcare facility. And after a few years of Lacey taking care of Cameron, Shauna decided to cut off ties with her because Lacey was being clingy and weird. Mm. And Shauna said that... It never seemed like Lacey wanted to be by herself. She always wanted a kid there, even if it was somebody else's kids. And she ended up having these weird interactions where somebody from her church came up to her and was like, oh, that's Cameron. That's Lacey's kid. Mm -hmm. And Shauna was like, no, this is my son. That's creepy. Yeah. And then afterwards, Lacey, you know, denied ever trying to pass off another child as her own. But eventually Lacey became pregnant with her son. His name was Garnet Paul. And he first became ill at nine days old. Oh my God. Yeah. And she was saying that he wasn't eating and he was getting infections. And so sure, maybe she had a sick baby, you know, that would be really sad. But I don't know. There's a lot of red flags that I feel like could have been caught earlier than they were. So she requested for Garnet to have a feeding tube put in at eight months old. And then pretty soon after that, he had a surgery to close his throat so that he wouldn't regurgitate. That's really scary. Mm-hmm. Like We're having these operations done on such a little baby mm-hmm. and essentially getting rid of a, a function of the body that is necessary mm-hmm. at certain times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she's already having things done that maybe weren't necessarily needed. Yeah, it's so weird because I I looked into what this surgery was, and I guess it's unusual for it to be performed on children that are under 18 months old. So the fact that it was performed on an eight-month-old baby, I'm like, I don't know. That, That just doesn't seem okay. And she requested that the surgery be done because she said that Garnet was a failure to thrive which that means that he wasn't gaining weight. And so he wasn't Mm -hmm. like hitting his milestones, which again, he was eight months old and like, I don't have a kid, whatever. It just seems kind of early to be like, this thing isn't working. Yeah. And And so we're going to do this drastic surgery. Mm -hmm. And the surgery is called Nissen's fundoplication. And it's typically done for the treatment of GERD, so gastroesophageal reflux disease. Mm. And in children, it can present with vomiting, chest pain, difficulty swallowing. And I like even as somebody who is a major emetophobe, and when I was telling my husband about this, he was like, are you interested in their surgery? And I was like, no, (laughs) only a little bit. But I guess they want to perform it because all of the acid that you can get from even acid reflux, not just vomiting, can actually 
cause the esophagus to ulcerate and scar, which will narrow mm. it. And mm-hmm. so if you're having these problems when you're 18 months old, you know, they don't want, want you to have lifetime problems, but right. they suggest medication first, you know, and it seems like medication wasn't a step that was given to Garnet. It seems like she was just like, he's projectile vomiting. He's not gaining weight. Let's do this surgery. And then they did it, you know? Well, and the other thing that comes to mind for me right off the bat, and again, this is speculation, but Mm -hmm. it sounds like she was probably telling these doctors that it was much worse than it actually was, Mm -hmm. especially if he wasn't having any inpatient hospital stays. I mean, she could have been telling these doctors that my child is throwing up from, you know, dawn till dusk all night long going Mm -hmm. on when maybe he had one bout of vomiting. That yeah. was terrible. Yeah. Um, because I'm sure that if a, a sound doctor was going to do a surgery on a child this young, it would have to be for a pretty severe case. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm not sure the kind of research or homework that these doctors did, but she got the surgery. And mm-hmm. this was when she was living in Alabama. And then she moved to Florida to find new doctors to treat Garnet. And I guess this was her pattern was she would say that she was moving to get Garnet better care because he was always sick. But Mm. as we will see, as the story progresses, I don't think that was the reason she was moving because she she moved to Florida and then she moved to New York. And that's where the bulk of the story takes place is in New York. And another reason that this case is so well known is because she was the Twitter mom. So she had the Twitter, Mm. Facebook and the MySpace and the blog, and they were all documenting how ill her kid was. Right, because this is probably back in, if we have any Zoomers in the audience, you may not remember when Facebook was, Venus is feeling hungry. Like that was your status. That's what you could right, yeah. use that format. And in MySpace, we documented everything we did mm-hmm. with all of our friends and same with Twitter. So she had, I mean, that does make it unique though, because we could see the play by play. Yeah, yeah. As, the, as it progresses with him. And just to get the kind of feel for what this Twitter was, I went to it and I did give it traffic. I don't know what it'll do, but, you know, we don't have to do it because I've done it for you. But Mm -hmm. her Twitter account was one of those, like, I'm a mother and that is my entire identity. Her handle was actually (laughs) Garnet's Mommy, I think was the handle. Yeah. And she did that thing where she always capitalizes the first letter of every word. I'm not meaning to pass judgment because there's a lot of mommy blogs that are fine and they don't kill their kids, but it's just like, this was her whole identity and this was the person that she was, you know? Right. She didn't have hobbies. She didn't enjoy movies. She didn't enjoy crocheting. She didn't enjoy going for walks on the beach. She enjoyed being a mom and telling everybody about being a mom. Exactly. So her first post on this Twitter was September 23rd. 2009 and it's doing the work thing with my little prince for a few that's what she always called him was my little prince and then that same day she posted three more times at the office with my little prince for a few smiley face rain rain please go away and then had a seizure this morning and wasn't around anything that should have caused one frowny face And then the the last one was loves her little prince, smiley face. I mean, this one is just up and down because the seizure was definitely in regards to, to Garnet. It wasn't her. Hers. Yeah. No. Well, and it's just so nonchalant. Yeah. How she's talking about it. I mean, we went from at the office with my little prince to Mm -hmm. rain, rain, go away to had a seizure 
this morning wasn't around anything. No big deal. That's so just throwing it out there when normally, first of all, that's not something somebody's going to take the time to tweet about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, let me pull up my Blackberry real quick. Yeah. It's had a seizure. Totes. Okay. It's really odd. And yeah, I'll, I'll just keep reading through and build the story as it, as it happens. So the next day she posted three times. She was at work with her little prince. And then the second one was, please pray for my little prince. He has another bad ear infection. The third one was, what a day, looking forward to going home and playing with Garnet Paul. So, I mean, in between these, like, here's how my day is going. He has an ear infection. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just, he, he was always sick. And that's really sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, September 30th, hoping the doctors can figure out what is going on today. So, October 5th, Garnet Paul is my everything. October 6th, started some new anti-seizure meds today, praying they help. October 13th, headed to the doctor for the third time today. Mm. Yeah. November mm-hmm. 9th is hoping Garnet does not, I think it was does not, but she put does have to be put in the hospital, frowny face. Or is, do you think that could be a Freudian slip? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because just uh, knowing what I, what I do know about this case. Yeah, for sure. Makes me think that that almost was I mean, not an accident. I had that thought too, but I also didn't want to come at it too much with knowing what had happened. I kind of wanted to get the feel for what how I would think of this person if I was friends with them back then or if I stumbled across their, mm-hmm. you know, Twitter back then. So... And then on November 11th, this is the one that the news media outlets quoted a lot. And the one that I did find shocking was my sweet angel is in the hospital for the 23rd time, frowny face, frowny face. Please pray he gets to come home soon. So <laughs> 23 times. And I, I will say that December 3rd of this year was Garnet's first birthday. Oh, my God. And so he's been in the hospital 23 times, according to her. He's having seizures. And it's just, you know... She doesn't have an in-house nurse or anything. He's not one of those long-term care kids. And I get that medical expenses, you know, they can be pretty outrageous. But it just doesn't seem like whatever is happening is being controlled by the family. And I also understand having a hesitancy to trust doctors. But there just seems like there's a lot of red flags, even on this one Twitter account, you know? No, there's a ton because especially... If he's in the hospital for the 23rd time, that's not even counting how many times he went to the doctor. For sure. That's how many times he went to the hospital mm-hmm. in 365 days. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. that's insane. Yeah. That's insane. And then she stopped posting on her Twitter fe- February 20th of 2010, but that is not where the story ended. She also had a blog that she kept in 2011. And things just got real weird around then. So by 2011, I think she was still living in Florida or maybe had just moved to New York, but Garnet was old enough that he could start making friends. And Mm. the friends that he was making and the family that he would like maybe go out with, Lacey would say that Garnet just never ate. And that's why he needed the feeding tube. He would never eat and he was sick all the time, but friends would take him to dinner with their kids and they said he would eat large amounts of food. Sometimes he'd eat second helpings and they never forced him to do it. He just seemed like a normal, happy kid, you know? So there's some Mm. red flags going on there. And then Mm -hmm. in her blog, she posts that in 2011, Garnet's father dies in a car accident. 
and mm. she, she's so sad that this will be Garnet's first whatever I think it was Halloween coming into Christmas without his dad and I don't know it was it was weird you know and people I think even around her thought that some of her story was weird and she was one of those people who really bounced around a lot yeah so by 2014 they had moved to an alternative community in New York because Lacey wanted Garnet to live and I'm not going to pass any judgment on her wanting to have her kid live in an alternative lifestyle. And maybe, I think he was going to public school, but he was really in a community sort of setting where she was taking care of the elders in the community. And he knew the people she was taking care of. Everybody knew mm-hmm. him. You know, they only ate organic food, whatever. That's fine. That's totally fine by me. But the people who she knew there were saying like, she was pretty weird. She came on really strong and really warm, but if you pissed her off, she would flip on you in a second, you know? Well, and if the people of a alternative lifestyle commune are calling you weird, <laughs> you're, pro- bit. you're probably weird. <laughs> and so this, this is where the tragedy happens. On January 20th, 2014, it was a Friday, and Garnet had severe fever, headache, and convulsions, Lacey reported, and so she took him into the hospital. And she wrote five posts on her Facebook about Garnet's condition, including one about his sodium level. But an EEG from his visit showed no seizure activity that day or the following two days. And then on the 22nd, which was that Sunday, he'd been in the hospital all weekend. The nurses told Lacey that Garnet was doing fine. You know, his EEG was fine and he was just mm-hmm. going to, he was going to get charged, discharged and go home soon. He seemed fine. And then within hours of the nurse telling them that and getting them prepared for discharge, Garnet was in critical condition. He started to show some pain and things like that and then had seizure activity and was airlifted to a specialized children's hospital elsewhere Mm -hmm. in New York. And during the transport, the two hospitals were having this conversation. So the nurse at the current hospital says sodium is 182. The doctor at the receiving hospital says 182. And the nurse says, 182, to confirm. The doctor says, no, then you need to repeat it, okay? That's impossible. Mm. Yeah. Upon admission to the first hospital, Garnet's sodium level had been 138, which meant that his sodium rose while in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And then Lacey, in her defense, because this led to the trial and everything, would later use this information to blame the hospital and say that they were at fault for the the rising sodium levels, mm. right? But mm-hmm. the specialists at the, the new hospital, although they were able to get his sodium levels down through IVs and he showed some improvement, his brain ended up swelling from this overdose of sodium that he had somehow gotten and it proved too much. And within 24 hours of admission to the new hospital, he was declared brain dead which Lacey also broadcasted on Facebook that he was brain dead and that she would have to be pulling him off life support soon. Uh, well, of course she did. Right. This mm-hmm. is very much on brand for her. Mm-hmm. So the police interviewed Lacey and they didn't suspect her yet, but she was one of the last people to be with him to know what his behavior was like. And she mentioned during this interview, you know, that Garnet's father was dead, just tragedy upon tragedy. And so the police, the police know this without ever having to have to see her blog. And when Lacey's dad shows up at the hospital, he told police that he didn't know who Daddy Blake was that Lacey was talking about and that mm. Garnet's father wasn't dead. 
Yeah. That's a pretty big deal to lie about. Yeah. So this Blake character was contacted and throughout the investigation, they find that he had dated Lacey, but he had never had a sexual relationship with her. So he wasn't the father. Garnet's real father was a man named Chris Hill, who was eventually located. And Lacey would later say she didn't want Hill to be a part of Garnet's life, so she decided to raise the child on her own, which is another red flag to me, you know? Maybe I'm putting too much into it, but did she start out this kid's life knowing that she was going to to use him, essentially? Well, and, and okay, let's say she doesn't want this Chris Hill, the uh, biological father in, her, in his life. Why lie about another man being the father? Why not just say, like this is my baby Mm -hmm. and I don't want his father in my life or his life. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of the story. That's not uncommon. It could have been that I think this Chris Hill guy was just like a contractor or a construction worker or something, you know, one of those like blue collar type jobs. And the Blake character was a police officer. So it could have been some sort of fantasy or some sort of aspirational type thing where she was like, oh, I'd rather Blake was the dad yeah so it's still pretty gross to lie about that it was weird it was a weird lie to discover after the child has died and you're investigating the mom because she seems kind of sketch and so after being like i don't know i don't know about this lady they decided to obtain a search warrant for Lacey's apartment and Mm -hmm. a salt container was found among garnet's medications of which there were several and normally i'd be like you know i put things in weird places in my house too. I use salt for a number of things, but her neighbor tells the police that Lacey had called her, the neighbor, and asked her to remove a feeding bag that was hooked up to a feeding machine that was probably being used right before Garnet had to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So Lacey asks the neighbor to, to take this feeding bag and not tell anybody about it. And the neighbor puts the feeding bag in a trash can and then for some reason put the trash can in a closet rather than getting rid of it. But she also fessed up to the police like hey yeah I did this and then they were able to find it really quick I mean kudos to her for at least doing that yeah so they they take this feeding bag and they test it and they find a high level of salt in this feeding bag the salt wasn't just there by coincidence right at this point investigators began to believe that Lacey was suffering from Munchausen's by proxy and was making her son ill in order to get attention in real life and online And and so can we slow down a little and talk a little bit about Munchausen's? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Munchausen's is actually now called factitious syndrome imposed on self or factitious syndrome imposed on another. But the more well-known word is Munchausen's. And so Munchausen's mm-hmm. itself is a form of mental illness where someone pretends to be ill or they deliberately make themselves ill. And it's usually for some sort of attention. And they can pretend to be psychologically ill and say that they hear voices, or they can pretend to be physically ill and say they have, you know, cancer, things like that. And usually they end up jumping from one doctor to another to find somebody who can't see through their lies or somebody who's willing to do the tests on them that they're asking for. And once they are found out, they find a different hospital or they pick up and move. This sounds very familiar. Mm Mm-hmm. They're good at manipulating people and can even actually end up getting serious injuries performed on themselves that they know aren't necessary because it adds to their story and it garners them attention. Munchausen's by proxy 
factitious disorder imposed on another is when a person fakes or induces illness in a person under their care. Mm-hmm. Usually this is a mother on child and usually the child is under six years old. <sighs> it is considered a form of child abuse as well as being a mental illness. So the DSM-5 includes falsification of physical and psychological signs or symptoms, induction of an illness or injury in another associated with deception. Mm-hmm. And this only happens to two out of 100,000 children, so it's not that common. Thankfully. Um, right? But unfortunately, despite it not being that common, that I did a little bit of math, and that's roughly 1,482 children based on 2020 population data, which to me seems like a lot of kids that could be put at risk, you know? Yeah, because you don't know how severe how mm-hmm. severe it is for the parent and how much they're going to, how deep they're going to go with it. Like, are they going to say like, oh, my kid's sick? Or is it going to be like Dee Dee Blanchard and Gypsy Rose Blanchard? Yeah. Yeah. You don't know if it's going to be like that, where they're going to make it incredibly problematic for the child right? and literally make them so sick and Mm -hmm. make them question their sanity kind of at some point. Right. And I mean, for the cases that do get that high of profile, it's kind of like, you're getting a lot of financial gain out of making your kids sick, especially with Dee Dee Blanchard. I mean, she got the house and she got Gypsy into all of, onto all those television segments. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, for sure. So the investigators began to suspect that Lacey was suffering Mm -hmm. from Munchausen's by proxy. And they said that this was part of the reason they moved. And you know, that, that seems to make sense. It does. But all of this was circumstantial. All of this was stuff that they would have had to piece together and convince somebody of a, in a trial until they found video footage from Garnet's hospital room from the day that he was announced brain dead. Ooh, what happened? So the EEG machine, I guess, just to be able to line up time stamps with when somebody's heart starts doing things, it has its own camera. Oh. And so... They could see on the camera that after the nurse told Lacey that Garnet was fine and left the room, Lacey took Garnet into the bathroom, which was off screen. And two visits were made to the bathroom, which, you know, again, that could be just a a mother helping her kid because he was still like he had his IV pole and everything. So he needed assistance. Mm -hmm. Sure. But within hours of preparing for discharge and after these two visits, Garnet was sick again and like really sick. So you can see on the video that he was burying his head in the blankets because he was starting to get this really bad headache and he was trying to vomit. You can see that he's trying to retch, but he can't because because he had that surgery. Yes. And the <sighs> so the high concentration of salt that was in him, and I don't know if vomiting would have helped necessarily, maybe a little bit, but the high concentration that was in him and he couldn't get rid of caused brain swelling. And so that resulted in his brain death. And then he was withdrawn from life support on January 23rd. So you know, one directly leads to another. Right. So the investigators see this and they finally issue a warrant for her arrest. And she's already in Kentucky because she's gone there to be with her family. And they find after all of this, they get a warrant, I guess, for her phone and Google searches on her phone were obtained and they were able to timestamp the searches and found that Lacey was doing searches for the effects of salt poisoning while in the hospital room with her son. Oh, yeah gross. And then, I mean, there's just so much, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that like normal true crime thing where I'm like, this clearly points, you know, I don't want to Nancy Grace it, but like, 
you know, during the six months investigation following the death of her son, investigators think that she was trying to get pregnant again, according to social media posts. Oh, no. I don't know. It just seems like she always needed a kid around. And why did she always need a kid around? And it's maybe because it got her attention, you know, so she needed to have another kid around. Yeah. I mean, I'll play armchair. I'll play armchair psychologist for a second and just say like, that was her way of getting attention. She didn't know how to do it herself. Mm -hmm. Um, So she always had to have a prop. Like, I don't want to, I don't mean to sound callous. Yeah. I don't mean to sound callous because I don't think that children and babies are props, but I think too lacy it was, especially with that other woman whose child, Mm -hmm. she was trying to say like, this is my child when it's not. And then she loses her kid and she doesn't know how to do it. And if she did have Munchausen's by proxy, I mean, she didn't, it obviously wasn't something she was going to do to herself. She couldn't make herself sick. She mm-hmm. wasn't going to do that all herself. She was going to do it to somebody else. Right. So she had to have another outlet mm-hmm. for that. Well, and again, to like kind of play on the armchair psychiatrist thing, like she's not going to do it to herself because being a mother is part of her identity. And part of the mm-hmm. identity of being a mother is being a caretaker, even when it's mm-hmm. hard. Right. So, right. And that's why she's so, especially when she's sharing how often she goes to the hospital, all of this on social media, look at me, look at me. I'm such a good mom. Mm -hmm. My child is so sick and I'm working so hard to get him the care that he needs. Like, look at me. I took him to the hospital 23 times this year. Yeah. Yeah. I don't buy it, but I don't buy it. So her defense claimed that she had no reason to kill Garnet and there was no direct evidence that she had ever harmed him because the bathroom visits were off camera. So again, they're saying that there's nothing conclusive to show this was her. This was probably on the hospital, but it came out that Garnet had previously been treated for salt poisoning as an infant. Oh. So was this a pattern of behavior? Was that an accident? Who's to say? Well, but it's all a little sus when you've got that first poisoning, you have the feeding bag Mm -hmm. that has an extraordinary amount of salt in it. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. just those two things alone. Yeah. Yeah. The feeding bag. And then the fact that within hours of him, he's about to be discharged. Suddenly his sodium spikes, you know? Right. So why? She was charged with murder in the second degree and first degree manslaughter but was found guilty of depraved indifference murder of a child in the second degree. I haven't heard that phrase before. What is depraved indifference? So I looked into it and I think depraved indifference is required for murder, but not manslaughter. It means that she recklessly engaged in conduct, which created a grave risk of death to another person, which she was aware Mm -hmm. of and disregarded. I think that it just was the difference between murder and manslaughter. And since she was charged with both, I think that that's what they went with. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the judge at trial said it was clear to him that Lacey had Munchausen's by proxy, although no psych had at that point. And then she was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. According to Lacey herself, a psych eval determined that she didn't have Munchausen's by proxy. But one of Garnet's previous physicians, who was a pediatric GI doc, was still concerned. And he was quoted as saying that The psychological evaluation is not where we identify the illness. What we're looking for is inconsistencies in what's being reported and what is seen clinically. And so I think that 
as much as I don't want to play armchair psych too much, it's important to recognize that it's not just a mental illness. It's a form of child abuse. And so even if no psych is saying she has it, you can see that she was harming Garnet and this this medical way that we've established looks like Munchausen's by proxy. Maybe she was just abusing him, but it does seem like she was trying to do it in order to get attention. Yeah, because it, I mean, just child abuse is bad. You're hitting your child. You're doing terrible things to your child. But this is more complex. This is more, yeah, this is different than just normal child abuse. Right, right. And I don't know if she was getting any of that financial gain like the Blanchards were. I did see that she had a fundraiser that was built up for her after his death to cover the medical bills. And then, you know, they were able to raise $800 before they learned that at least he was being investigated and they decided Mm. to stop the fundraising and refund the money. Mm -hmm. But during his life, I didn't find anything that suggested she had financial motives. I mean, maybe her parents were helping her out or maybe she was just skipping town on the bills. I don't know. Mm-hmm. find anything so it doesn't really seem like she was getting financial motive while he was alive I think it was mostly like you know attention online was her yeah problem. yeah it seems to be just because it's almost like she was bragging about it on social media mm-hmm. yeah. like oh look at this amazing breakfast I just had yeah and this is look at my sick son yeah well and I mean there is that sort of mommy culture that I've noticed where certain people will kind of interrupt a conversation by being like, my life is so hard and I don't have any free time because I'm a mother, you know, that sort of argument. Mm -hmm. And totally Mm -hmm. not all parents or mothers are like that, but there are certain ones that kind of like, I've seen the term mommy jack, they mommy jack the conversation and they're like, Mm. oh, my life means so much more or my life is so much harder, but you know, that sort of thing. And it kind of seems like this is a really egregious example of that version of it green yeah that makes sense that makes sense yeah but what I think is even crazier is I was you know trying to get ready to research this episode after I'd already lost the link to that article that I'd sent you and Mm -hmm. so I googled mother poison son with salt uh, you know assuming that I'd find the Garnet Spears case and I I was I was shocked by how many hits I got online that weren't the Spears case so this happens a lot I mean, it happens enough. So here's the ones that I was able to to find just by doing that quick search. Okay. In 2018, a nanny in northwestern Russia killed a two-year-old in her care by adding 50 grams of salt to his porridge, forcing him to eat it. And this is reportedly after she and her family had mocked the child for a month and beat him with a belt while he was in their care. Oh, my God. Well, and... She had to have forced him to eat that. If she put that much salt in his pork, like 50 grams Mm -hmm. is not a small amount of anything. No, no. She definitely forced him to eat that amount. And she she was sentenced to 14 years in prison. In 2016, a South Carolina mother killed her 17-month-old by giving her a teaspoon of salt to get her husband's attention. She pled guilty and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. A teaspoon? A teaspoon, yeah. And so, I mean, it's a small amount for us, but for a 17-month-old, yeah, that was a lot. That was a lot. In 2015, a mother in West Yorkshire gave her eight-month-old two teaspoons of salt, which actually didn't kill the child. The mother then added the salt to the child's nasogastric tube while in the hospital. 
Oh. Mm-hmm. The the baby ended up making a full uh, recovery and is alive and well now, but the mother was imprisoned for a year and the child was put up for adoption. For a year? Mm-hmm. That's it? Mm-hmm. She got a year-long prison sentence, which was suspended for two years, and a two-year community order with a 10-day rehabilitation activity requirement and a mental health treatment requirement. And this case was a little different because she said that she'd first tried to kill herself with the salt because she, she was stuff, suffering from the stress of being a first-time mother. And then she wrote this email to the baby, like, to read later on, I guess, saying that she added the salt to the tube to make the doctors listen. So, I mean, it could have just been a year because she needed to have that mental health treatment requirement and they were trying to be sympathetic to that, especially since the child didn't die. But sure. Yeah. Yeah. In 1997, a mother killed her four-year-old by poisoning him over 10 days with 125 grams of salt in his sodas. She claimed that she didn't mean to kill him and was simply trying to sedate him so that he wasn't so draining on her. Oh, poor mom. The son's father didn't know about the poisoning, and so he kept taking him to doctors to figure out what was wrong. And the doctors either thought, one thought it was tonsillitis and gave him antibiotics, and another (sighs) gave him sedatives for some reason. So this kid was just sedated up until death. Oh my gosh. Psychiatrists reported that she had untreatable Munchausen's by proxy, which I don't know how I feel about that. You know, that just seems like you're kind of giving up on this woman, but she was put in prison for life. So in terms of giving up on her, she's in prison for life. I mean, well, and the thing too is how long did the doctors try to treat her? Yeah. Before to play devil's advocate, do I think what she did is okay? Absolutely not. It's horrendous. But mm-hmm. to say that it's untreatable, like how yeah. long did you really try for before you said that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So even okay. though, yeah, I mean, she's a terrible person. She obviously abused her child and it resulted in death. And that's inexcusable. Like mental health, mental illness needs to be taken more seriously, you know? Oh, at 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. So to me, it sounds like th- it is kind of common for mothers to kill and or try to kill their children with salt. I-, I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's common. I would say that we get these reports because it's just, it's it's easy. You know, it can happen mm-hmm. easily. It is a little bit novel, but in terms of child abuse, I wouldn't say that it's common. So I, I pulled okay. some numbers and I would say that this accounts for very few numbers cases of child abuse. So it does seem more common in cases where the mother is suffering from Munchausen's by proxy. But Mm -hmm. even in those cases, it accounts for less than 1% of Munchausen's or fictitious disorder imposed on another related Mm -hmm. child abuse cases. Okay. (laughs) Bear with me because I have some statistics on child abuse. Give me the numbers. All right. So a May 2020 report revealed that in 2018, the United States Child Protective Services received 4.3 million referrals involving abuse of 7.8 million children. Oh, my God. And before I continue, I will say that this is the same, this is the same agency that reports on sex trafficking and things like that. And there's great podcasts that have been done by the people that you're wrong about, about like the Wayfair stuff and child sex trafficking Mm -hmm. and things like that. So I would go listen to that. But they basically say that these numbers can be duplicates and they don't, Mm -hmm. they don't realize that or they don't differentiate it because 
I mean, mm. the kids who are in danger and they like continuously show up to school with bruises and the teachers continuously call, those can be duplicate cases. So I'm not going to gotcha. say that like child abuse isn't common, but I will say that this probably includes duplicate numbers. Sure. I mean, because three of these, let's say three cases could be the same one child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is what you're saying. Okay. Yes. But with the numbers that I just gave you, that's 58.5 referrals per 1,000 children. That's too much. Of these, 2.4 million reports regarding 3.5 million children were deemed worthy of CPS response, whatever that means. And whatever critique I have about mm-hmm. CPS, we'll just kind of overlook that for now. Okay. So that number is 47.8 children per 1,000 being checked on, which is not excluding repeat reports and things Mm -hmm. like that. And only 2 million children received services through CPS in 2018. So out of the 7.8 million referrals. Out of the the 4.3 million referrals involving 7.8 million children, only 2 million children received services. Yeah, that's 5.8 million children who didn't mm-hmm. get any type of help. Well, mm-hmm. that's really that's really sad. 16.8%, which is about um, 588,000 children, were found to be victims of abuse. 2 million received services, but only a quarter of that were found to be victims of, of abuse, including neglect. And that's 9.2 children per 1,000 in the population. Of these 588,000 roughly children... 357,000 suffered from neglect, 63,000 suffered from physical abuse, 41,000 suffered from sexual abuse, 13,500 suffered from psychological maltreatment, 4,000 suffered medical neglect, and 2.7%, which is about 16,000, suffered other maltreatment, including threatened abuse and parental substance abuse. 1,770 children died due to abuse in 2018, and three quarters of them were less than three years old. And 954 of these children died from neglect. If we take these numbers and we say that 63,000 children suffered from physical abuse, Mm -hmm. one of the case studies that I was reading said that they only found 15 cases of salt poisoning which they were able to say was intentional Mm. abuse by salt poisoning. And so that's, you know, 15 out of 63,000. So I would not say it's common. Sure. That's very small amount. However, 40% of intentional salt poisoning cases involve children that are less than 15 years old. And Mm. 50% of the intentional cases that they found were fatal. So it's, this is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Even though it's not common, it's, it's, High stakes, high consequences. Well said. Yeah. So, I mean, as important as I I believe it is to identify abuse, it also seems like hypernatremia is just common in children in general. If we're looking at these really small numbers, children in general are fairly susceptible to it. Hypernatremia. Break it down, please. Very high (laughs) sodium concentration. Okay, so like when Garnet was in the hospital. Yes, yes. He was hypernatremic. Yes. Okay. It can occur normally from dehydration or a rare disease called diabetes insipidus. 
It can Mm -hmm. also occur during kidney disease and of course, an acute sodium ingestion, right? So there's a number of ways that kids can get it. And to me, it seems like kids are just kind of susceptible to it because they do get those GI infections and those GI illnesses when they're young a lot, you know, that causes vomiting or diarrhea. And that's why, you know, pedialyte is such a big thing to make sure that they're getting their electrolytes, but also getting fluids. And so it seems like it's not uncommon for children to experience it. You just need to be careful with them when it happens, you know, and it's, there's this really narrow window that we live in to not be hypernatremic or hyponatremic, which is not enough sodium. Okay. So the diagnosis for hypernatremia is a serum sodium level of 150 milliequivalents per liter of blood, which basically just means it's a reflection of the amount of sodium present in the body relative to the amount of liquid in the body. Mm-hmm. A normal amount of blood sodium is 135 to 145 milliequivalents per liter. That's what I was just going to say. His was in that range when he was admitted. And then mm-hmm. at the time he died, it was way above that. Yes, it was 138 at admission and then 182 when he experienced brain death, or at least when he was being given the flight for life. I have Um, read cases of children surviving as much as 216 milliequivalents per liter of sodium. Wow. And this was after a child ingested four tablespoons of rock salt. Oh. Yeah, this child was in foster care and suffered from pica disorder, so where you eat things that are not food. Mm-hmm. And normally four tablespoons would be fatal to an adult, but luckily this child lived. And so what happens when someone ingests too much salt? First, they have intense thirst. And then as their condition worsens, they have difficulty sleeping. They feel restless. They become confused, have muscle twitching and seizures. Mm. Fluid can build up in the lungs and they can experience nausea, vomiting, and kidney damage. It can also cause mm. coma and death from brain swelling as in Garnet Spears' case. Wow. And this is just so crazy that this could happen from salt. I could literally walk into my kitchen right now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and k- kill myself or somebody <laughs> with salt. Like, I'm not yeah. going to do that, but that's just crazy to think about because I never once looked at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's that. so accessible. It's Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. And I think that's part of the reason that even though it's not super common, I did find those case studies on it. And there is these reports that you can find all over the internet if you Google mother kills son with salt because it's just so easily accessible. Yeah. But I mean, we're just such fragile characters, you know, (laughs) our bodies are so easily destroyed. (laughs) Right. Well, and just thrown out of, out of alignment. Yeah. Yeah. So sodium is one of the main electrolytes in the body. It's super important that we have a good balance. And the reason that we have it and the reason that it needs to stay in that balance is because it's osmotically active, which means that it helps with osmosis and keeps cells from collapsing or bursting by maintaining extracellular fluid volume. It was an idea that I was made familiar with in school, but I was always like, I don't understand what you're saying. And I know there's a special word for when you have like a big cell or a small cell and like you're supposed to know these vocabulary words and it's basically because of salt, but I don't remember because I'm not a biologist. (laughs) You're a chemist. (laughs) I'm a chemist. Uh, The kidneys need a sodium and a potassium gradient in order to filter waste from the body. Sperm is Mm. regulated by a membrane potential to kept in check by sodium. 
Hmm. And neurons in the brain use sodium and potassium gradients in order to send out the electrical signals to each other. So once it leaves one neuron and like, Phew, it has to do that mm-hmm. to reach the next neuron, which is why oh. you experience seizures is because your brain's just like sodium, 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 sodium. Wow. So it, I had no idea it affects so many different functions in the body. It is critical. It's absolutely critical. Huh. And when we have too much sodium in the blood, our cells collapse because they send out their own fluid to dilute the sodium levels in the blood. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And again, the cutoff for hyponatremia, if we end up with too little sodium in the blood Mm -hmm. is 135 milliequivalents per liter. And so that's just the bottom of that window of 10. When it's toxic. Yeah. There's a 10 milliequivalent per liter window that we, we live happily in. And if you're outside of that window, hyponatremia includes headache, confusion, nausea, and delirium. So, I mean, anywhere outside of that, you're just like, you're not doing well, you know, and the symptoms are essentially the same. And so all of this can happen so easily, accidentally. Mm. We are fragile. Like you said, there's Mm. this little bitty, bitty, bitty window, our happy salt window or our happy sodium window. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Don't ever get it out of whack or you might die. Yeah, pretty much. If you go on the poison control hotline website, they point out that there's a prank that involves chugging a bottle of soy sauce, which I can totally see college freshmen doing, and it it's caused seizures. They mentioned one case where a 19-year-old ended up having seizures and only survived when he received intensive care. You know, and this was as a prank or one of those quote-unquote challenges, yeah. or yeah. like the cinnamon challenge, or the. Yeah. Yeah. There's another challenge I read about that was like salt for Syria or something. And it was for whatever reason, people were trying to relate to the experience of Syrian refugees by eating a teaspoon of salt or a tablespoon of salt, a lot of salt, too much salt. And it was mostly kids, of course, who were challenging each other to do it. And it's like, no, don't do that. The Syrian refugees don't do that. And you shouldn't do it because everyone dies when they do that. You know? Yeah. This is a bad idea, kids. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And it's okay. just because we don't understand how fragile we are. And we don't understand the narrow right. window that we live in of safety involving <laughs> sodium. I had uh, no idea. Every time I leave an episode, I'm like slightly <laughs> terrified. I, this is the world I live in. <laughs> yeah. Like knowledge is power, but knowledge is also like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> like... Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> salt used to be used as an emetic too. Not like when you'd go to the doctor, but just people would be like, oh, I need to make myself vomit. And so I'll drink mm-hmm. salt water don't do that. Don't do that. You could die. (laughs) I had a sore throat once when I was a kid and my grandma told me to gargle with salt water Mm -hmm. and I was a child and I didn't really understand how to gargle and I drank it. I drank it. Yeah. And it was bad. Like, and I don't, and this is such an early memory. I mean, I was really probably like seven or eight. So I don't know if I got sick or not, but now I'm wondering like, I was on the brink of death. (laughs) Oh, man. I remember a similar situation where I was told to gargle, but my grandma was crazy. And so she like, I I guess in this case, it was good that she was crazy because she made sure I didn't drink the salt Mm. water. But I was Mm -hmm. also like, why can't I drink it? I love salt. Right. Mm -hmm. Same. Same. I love salt. Leads into this case that I also found of a mother who accidentally killed her child with a salt overdose in 2007. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So So, what, what's that about? A woman in Texas named Hannah Overton was convicted of killing her four-year-old and that she and her family were fostering and planning to adopt. 
Mm. Apparently what happened was the boy was given a bowl of bean soup with Creole seasoning for lunch, which he ate. He then asked for a second bowl, which he ate. And when he asked for a third bowl, Hannah was concerned that he would overstuff himself. And so she gave him the seasoning, the Creole seasoning in his sippy cup, just to get the flavor without Mm. overeating. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, pretty soon after lunch, he began vomiting, his breathing was strained. And so she drove him to the hospital. Seems like she did everything right. But again, if you're looking at this with a critical eye, you can be like, eh, is it Munchausen? I don't know. She was fostering him, planning to adopt. Who knows what's going on? But the hypernatremia caused severe bruising on his body. And so she was accused not only of poisoning him, but of physical abuse. Oh, no. She served seven years in prison before new evidence came to light and she was exonerated. Oh, wow. What evidence came to light that got her acquitted? I think that she appealed the case. And so the jury originally thought that she hadn't acted quickly enough, but her new defense lawyer argued that it takes an hour for salt poisoning to begin showing symptoms in a child. So, I mean, basically, you either need to realize that they're being poisoned and take them, or as soon as it happens, they just need to receive immediate care. So it seems like she was working in this like really small window where she was able to do anything right. and it was just not, it wasn't quick enough and that wasn't on her, you know? Well, and it, I mean, and that is, it doesn't seem there like there's a lot of forgiveness there as far as the time window is concerned. If it's not even going to show you anything into one hour and it's like, well, it's too late now. Yeah, at one hour, you're already starting to experience a delirium. And the cells collapsing inside of you. I mean, because what do you do to reverse that? You you don't. In the first trial, the prosecution had said that Hannah killed her son, or Hannah had killed this child because he had been destructive earlier in the day. And so she wanted to punish him. And that's how he got so much salt in her system. But then at the new trial, they were like, she was planning to adopt this foster kid. She could have just not adopted him. She could have just let him go through the cycle Mm -hmm. foster kids do and fostered a different child. I tend to agree with them. She, why, why do that? Right. They argued in this new trial that it wasn't that she was trying to punish him. It was that he was likely experienced undiagnosed pica and that made him crave ridiculous amounts of salt, which is probably also why he was eating so much bean soup. Like that seems like a lot of bean soup for a child, you know, that's a lot of fiber. And so it was probably just that he was experienced pica and Mm. nobody knew that. Was there anything that she could have done sooner? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that she could have done anything sooner because it seems like it's one of those cases where she just didn't know. Like you coming into the podcast, you're like, I didn't know. So what she needed to do was once she realized or once symptoms started to kick in, she needed to call 911 or get immediate medical attention, which she did. She or anybody else who chugs a bottle of soy sauce can call poison control. And the number for that is 1-800-222-1222. And they can give you advice. I haven't actually called them because I don't want to screw with their day, but they can give you (laughs) advice for what to do. Mm -hmm. Once the the person who's experiencing salt poisoning is in the hands of professionals, they can get their stomach pumped and they may be given IV fluids to correct the imbalance of liquid to sodium in their blood Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. This is most effective if the poisoning has had less than 24 hours to take effect on the brain. So maybe Mm -hmm. if you have like, a tablespoon and you're feeling weird and you're starting to Mm. feel it you need to you know get medical attention before 24 hours but if you are like I'm just gonna like go sleep this off and it's over 24 hours then there's the risk that 
fluid levels have already started to change in the brain and that changing those fluid levels back to normal may actually cause more brain damage. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. They may give you water through a nasogastric tube. They may give you diuretics to speed up the excretion of sodium through the kidneys. Mm. And then if your kidneys are injured, you'll end up requiring dialysis as well. Wow. Mm -hmm. This is heavy. This is some heavy stuff for something that we all have on our dinner table. I know. Yeah. You have to be really careful. I mean, I know that most people are aware of what is essentially chronic too much sodium is that you'll get increased blood pressure and things like Mm -hmm. that, hypertension. But yeah, acute sodium levels can be really, really dangerous. And it seems like especially children, just because that dose is so much smaller for children. Yeah, this yeah. is this is insane. Thank you so much for sharing all of this knowledge with us. Yeah. And now we know. Now, you now know. we know. Well, do you want to summarize what we learned here today? Uh, yeah, our bodies are incredibly fragile. The smallest thing can knock them out of whack and <laughs> maybe kill you. Let's see. Don't chug soy sauce and don't just eat Creole seasoning or ramen packets or <laughs> things like that just because it tastes good. Or like Lucas, you know, the lime salts. Oh, yeah. I love that. I don't know how I didn't get sick as a kid because I would just sit there and eat that for days. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe and remember, the dose makes the poison. Mm-hmm.